If hearing this episode is distressing for you, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. That is definitely something that is one of my biggest memories from it all is just, yeah, in times of tragedy, people just really put everything aside and are just are there to help. Megan Bassioli was caught in the middle of the terror attack in Bali. But what makes Megan's story different from most is that 20 years ago, she was still a kid. Megan is the youngest West Australian survivor of the bombings and she lost someone incredibly close to her. But in this final episode, you will hear the positives that emerged not only for Megan, but for others featured in this podcast. Bali is uh, islands of gods. The sky gods, the air, and also the land, also the water. I'm Ali Donaldson, and this is Shockwaves, the Bali bombings. Episode 6, A Child Survivor's Story. Megan was on holiday in Bali with her dad and brother, as well as her dad's partner and her stepsister Nadine. We had been there about seven days. Me and uh, my stepsister at the time, she is one year older than me, so she was 15. We just thought that it would be cool to brag to our school friends coming back from Bali, saying that we were able to go to a bar for the first time because in Bali, you you know, anything goes. <laughs> the teens had been hassling their parents for a week to go to the Sari Club in Kuta. Hey! So we'd been out for dinner and, again, we're pestering them to go, so uh, we popped by on our way home from dinner. It just felt like, you know, a 14-year-old girl. Me and my stepsister were giggling and... Yeah, it just felt like we were kind of breaking the rules. We actually hadn't been there too long. I don't know how long exactly, but maybe 15, 20 minutes. So my dad and uh, his partner had got a drink and, yeah, we were just standing around ha- having a chat and dancing. It's just before 11pm when a massive car bomb out the front explodes. I think we were... Um, standing in a circle, um, dancing, and we were pretty near the front of the Sari Club. And I just remember just kind of being frozen and it just being really silent and there just being a really bright light. I think I must have been knocked unconscious because the next thing I remember is just waking up covered in rubble and with my stepmother like laying on top of me because I just remember like not being able to move at all. I woke her up and as we both kind of like stumbled to our feet, we were trying to make our way out the wreckage. Um, On our way through, like a large piece of timber fell on top of me and I remember putting my arm up to try and brace myself, but it hit me and we both fell to the ground. And then, yeah, I just remember trying to make our way through and there just being lots of fire everywhere. Megan and her stepmom were able to get out pretty quickly. They made their way down a side street nearby and sat down. My stepmother said, just wait here. I'm going to go back and look for your dad and stepsister. 
Megan remembers the chaos. Uh, just, I just remember lots of people running around. There just being lots of screaming and yelling. Another really vivid memory is hearing like glass bottles exploding because um, it kind of sounded like gun. I guess I didn't know at the time what had happened, so it sounded like gunfire. Amazingly, Megan's stepmom comes back with her stepsister Nadine, but there was no sign of her dad. We just kind of all sat down next to each other um, and just took a moment. And then I guess it was at that point that we all realised that we all had injuries. Megan was in excruciating pain. So I had 36% burns on my arms, legs, back and a little bit on my face. I had lots of shrapnel wounds and especially my right wrist. I had a really big laceration and some of my tendons to my fingers were cut. But all around her, many others were even worse off. A man who had an amputated arm came like running up towards us screaming and he sat down next to me and kind of like laid his body weight on top of me and as much as like I wanted to comfort him I just at that point realised how much pain I was in so we just I just pushed him off. Then her stepmother says get up we've got to go. Megan's badly injured and in shock. Now remember the bombs went off just before 11pm and it would be sunrise before Megan would reach medical help. We started walking down the side street and then the next thing I remember is just a stranger coming and lifting me up and carrying me towards a hotel nearby Um, and then he just laid me down around the pool next to my stepsister and stepmother and we were there, well I was there until I remember the sun coming up when I was being taken to the hospital. When I was laying by the pool, a young um, boy from New South Wales named Craig, he was two years older than me, so he was 16 at the time. Him and his family had been staying in a nearby hotel. Megan remembers lying there for hours talking to Craig while he held her hand. And I don't know why it was, but just, yeah, having him there gave me some form of comfort. So I just said, can you just stay with me and talk to me? And so he just ended up staying with me the whole time that I was in Bali until I got evac'd out. For Megan, the medivac process on board the Hercules, an Australian military aircraft, was among her darkest moments. Yeah, that was probably my least favourite memory. (laughs) I hated being in the Hercules. They're so noisy and you obviously have to get strapped in. I was in so much pain and I felt like I couldn't breathe properly. So, yeah, I I absolutely hated being in that Hercules. Obviously, it was great to be making my way home, but I had a pit stop in Darwin. Getting back on that Hercules again was pretty brutal. All I wanted was my mum, like, just so far from home. I remember being wheeled off the back of the Hercules and just turning my head to the side and seeing my mum standing there, and, yeah, it was a, a feeling I can't describe. She was taken to the burns unit at Royal Perth Hospital and still there's no news of her dad. So my dad was missing for quite a while. I didn't find out about what had happened to my dad till I think I'd, it was about a week later. Then it was officially confirmed Megan's dad had died in the bombings. 
I didn't really get to grieve my dad for a really long time because, you know, I got told when I was in the intensive care unit I was on a lot of pain relief and sedatives and dealing with my own injuries. And I guess at that point, being in hospital kind of had me out of reality. So it wasn't until I got home and got back to a normal way of life that all that sort of really started to sink in. So it wasn't until a fair bit later that the grieving process really started. Back home, in the months after the bombings, life wasn't easy. Megan had lost her dad, she was dealing with intense trauma and the physical impact, the burns on her body, were hard to process. Being a teenage girl is tough at the best of times. So dealing with my burns and scars at the age of 14 was pretty tough, especially, you know, as a 14-year-old girl, you're already battling self-image issues and going through puberty and everything that that has, brings with it. I mean, I still have issues with it at times today. I think everybody does, but yeah, I, it took me a good few years to get used to it. Megan was treated for her burns by Dr Fiona Wood, the world-leading burn specialist you heard from in episode three. I have been treated by Fiona Wood the whole way through, even after I was discharged from hospital. Um, and I just think she's the most amazing person. Um, yeah, she just has such an amazing bedside manner. You can just tell that she really cares about her patients. She had a really warm approach and like she remembered my mum's name and every time she came in, you know, she'd address everyone there. And she never appeared rushed, even though you could imagine that she must have not been sleeping at that point. Um, but she always took the time out to, you know, talk to explain everything properly. Yeah, she was amazing. Now remember, Megan was just 14 years old, so she relied heavily on her family for her emotional recovery. I honestly testament a lot of how I dealt with everything to my family. Like, I'm so close with my family and they were just amazing throughout it all and so supportive. So anytime I was struggling with anything, I could always lean on them. And I think when you lose someone that young, it just then also really makes you appreciate the people that you do have, like my little brother and my mum and even you know, my aunties and uncles. Like I said, I'm really close to my family and I think losing my dad really, really gave me that appreciation. There's the family you're born into and then there's other family you choose. And by that I mean those people in your life who become like family. For Megan, Craig Settle, the teenage boy who held her hand, would over the years go from a caring stranger to someone very special to her. Just amazing. That is definitely something that is one of my biggest memories from it all is just, yeah, in times of tragedy, people just really put everything aside and are just are there to help. Yeah, being so far away from home and not having my mum or being able to find my dad, just having Craig there honestly gave me so much comfort. Craig, actually, those summer school holidays that year in December, he came and stayed with me and my family at my mum's house and met my mum and my little brother and stayed with us for three weeks. 
Um, and yeah, we're still friends today. Like I went over to Sydney to visit him and we still talk occasionally. He'll definitely always have a really special place in my heart. I just, yeah. So did he in some way be a lifesaver in your life, do you think? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. In many ways, when he was just 16 by that hotel pool, Craig delivered the very best bedside manner. It was his care that encouraged Megan to pursue her dream career. She now works as a nurse, including at Royal Perth Hospital. I wanted to give back the way that like Craig had. And I thought, given my experience, I definitely could bring, you know, empathy to my nursing that maybe other people wouldn't be able to. You know, especially because I work in the emergency department. Um, it's just very easy to get caught up being busy and just focusing on what next task you have to do. And I think we see some of the craziest things that a lot of people wouldn't believe, but I think sometimes when you're really busy, it's easy to forget that this is the biggest thing and the person laying on the bed, the biggest thing they'll ever have to deal with in their life. Sometimes it's just a simple thing like, you know, leaning down towards them and just a hand on their arm and saying, are you okay? Like, or it's going to be okay, don't worry. You know, we're here to look after you. Just little things like that. The way that he helped me was just something that I always wanted to be able to give back in some way because, yeah, I just think in times when you're at your most vulnerable, just having someone there to... You know, they might not be able to do anything, but just having them by your side to say, it's okay, you're going to be all right, that just makes all the difference. There were some other teenage boys who were also there when the bombs went off who have become really special to Megan too. There's another group of survivors that I've become friends with throughout all this and, yeah, it's always really nice to catch up with them and as well. So I think they played a big role too. So it's a group of uh, eight boys Um, They were all on holiday together, so they're a little bit older than me. Uh, I think they were 17 or 18 at the time. I just knew of them from them living in the same area. And one of the boys, Aaron, who um, I had heard about when we were on the tarmac in Bali, he was laying behind me and I heard them ask him what his name was and I heard him say Aaron Lindsay. And I knew that I recognised that name. And then when we were in the intensive care unit at Royal Perth, we were side by side, so our mums got talking. And then, yeah, afterwards, after we were all discharged from hospital, I ended up, yeah, meeting Aaron and all of his friends and we became friends from there. Yeah, so we, we spend every anniversary with all of them. Sometimes the world sends you some good people. Definitely. Megan says she hasn't had a bad anniversary for a really long time. So every year for the anniversary, we have a bit of a ritual now and we always go to the to Kings Park for the dawn service and then later on in the day we all catch up for drinks and, um, yeah, just kind of have a chat and tell stories and we always toast my dad and we kind of turned it into more of a day that we look forward to and celebrate rather than sit around and be sad. Have you ever gone back to Bali? I have, yeah, a few times. It's really sad that it happened there, especially because they are such gentle, kind people. 
So I'm glad that, you know, I was able to go back. I think going back definitely helped give me a little bit of closure. I caught up with Balinese local Daniel Herry at a main temple in Denpasar when I went back this year. We're standing outside under giant frangipani trees and the air is heady with incense. The local women, they're dressed in these beautiful white lace tops, flowers in their hair and hands, and the men are in yellow saris and they're outlaying offerings to the gods. Bali is uh, islands of the gods, the sky gods, the air, and also the land, also the water. And what's that supposed to do? Balinese Hindu, they're praying three times a day. They give offerings such as flowers and incense. That's uh, supposed to be to pray for the family and also for the children and also for their work. And the biggest one, they're offering some fruits, they're offering some uh, uh, animals, even uh, some flowers as incense as well. That's the biggest one is for community, for all the peoples that are living amongst them. 20 years ago, those they'd welcomed into their community with warmth and grace and love, the tourists who had come to the Island of the Gods were rocked by an unexpected terror strike. But for many, there was also unexpected comfort being soothed by Bali spirituality. It's all around here. It permeates everything, and particularly in the waters that surround this island, which is where Balinese Hindus believe the world's souls come to rest. Back then, when the first shockwaves hit, the ocean was a place of solace and heartbreaking beauty. Hundreds flocked to the shoreline at sunset for paddle out memorials, laying wreaths and so many tears went into the waves. All around us was flushed pink with the sun's dying rays and no doubt this year for the 20th anniversary, it's where many will head again. I've reported on what happened in Bali for more than 20 years now, and I have to be really honest here, this series wasn't easy to make. It's really hard to go back in time and remember what happened, seeing it with my own eyes, but also what I was asking of people. I was asking people I cared about to revisit their trauma, knowing it could be triggering, and I'm so thankful to everyone who took the time to speak to me. But I do honestly believe we need to tell these stories. We can't forget what happened. These are stories about survival. They're stories about helping others and forgiveness. There are critical takeaways from what happened in Bali, not just politically and socially, but at a personal level. It shows the tenacity of the human spirit in the face of disaster and the importance of belonging. I want you to hear again, though, from some of those you've heard from across this series. Among all the madness of the bombings, there has been joy. And that's something former AFP officer Andy Thorpe experienced firsthand. One of my work colleagues from Bali um, decided that for his 50th, he would basically just invite people to come to Bali and he'd have a dinner over there. So, of course, I was in for that. And... When that occurred, it was not long after my mother passed away and left us some money and she was a teacher. And I just happened to meet a family in Bali who had a 
they had a daughter who was just leaving high school and she wanted to do teaching at university. So my wife and I decided that we offered to pay for her to go through university because there was obviously no way they could afford to do it otherwise. I might have to miss the, the 20th anniversary only if, uh, if I can get over for the graduation from uni. For survivors like Simon Quayle, it's about redefining expectations. When it first started, the anniversary, I'm not sure if you've been to Kings Park, but such an awesome spot where the memorial is. We, I used to go there the day before because I couldn't go there on the day or with the crowds there because it's not about, in my eyes, everyone else. It actually has become about Noreen and I and our children and anyone else that wants to come, a few of our friends that have lost that lost their partners where Nori and I are still really good friends with them. We used to go the day before and take the kids and have a kick at the footy and and it was and the build up became harder than the actual day. That's what I always found. Recently Simon tracked down the German girl from the t-shirt shop he helped on the night of the bombings and she's had her own family and she's named one of her children after Simon. He didn't mention this to me, but I think this is important for you to know. He also received a commendation for brave conduct from the Governor-General of Australia for selflessly helping others to safety that night. In Sanglar Hospital, Birdie will be reaching out across the ocean. I contact uh, the nurses and the friend in the Royal Darwin Hospital. We still have discussion and contact, especially when there is a special event like this. Nilu, who lost her husband, has a message for all. Bali is still beautiful and always beautiful. And uh, you have to believe Bali, uh, we have Bali with much love and peace. But in riding out these shockwaves, it's Dr Fiona Wood's final comments that I believe bear repeating. And I hope they'll reverberate for a long time to come. I think all of us, as we step back from look down the tunnel of time of 20 years, just spare a thought for those people who've lived those 20 years without their loved ones, without seeing them grow, without holding the children they may have had. And then to give another thought for all what's happening around the world. And I'm a great believer in each and every one of us working towards a society that we're proud of, based on the integrity of each and every one of us, not abdicating to intellect of the few, not abdicating to people who make decisions to go to war or make decisions to cause such terror that we all need to stand up maybe and be counted. And in doing that, maybe we will have a society, communities that we're proud to hand on to our kids and our grandkids. It's really beautiful. Shockwaves, The Bali Bombings is a co-production between Network 10 and Listener. 
Hosted, written, researched and produced by me, Ali Donaldson. Script editing by Jennifer Goggin and Jake Morecambe. Sound design and audio production by Dave Stein. Audio recordists, Owen Wynne, Ben Patrick, Nathan Hill, Jake Staunton and Carl Carousella. Ali Aitken is the Podcast Content Partnership Manager for Network 10. Melanie Withnall is Head of News and Information at Listener. If hearing this episode is distressing for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14.